1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guests, because there's two, so there's an S on the end of guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself, just so you have some background on myself, and then certainly we'll get into today's guests and their background. Similar to them, I work as an executive coach different to them. I also work as a mental performance coach. So in the executive coach space, we all work with executives in the corporate world, and we all do facilitation. Um, I am very fortunate to get to do that work. And I have a group of coaches uh, that are facilitators and coaches, and we go into organizations and we provide experiences over Zoom in person. And we teach skills like leadership, teamwork, and communication We believe that these skills, though, should not be called soft skills. And in the corporate world, they are often deemed soft skills. So the name of our company is called Strong Skills. And Strong Skills, we really are on a mission to change how the world thinks about these skills. We literally want people to start calling them Strong Skills. Maybe you can help us. Let's start changing how we even talk about these essential skills. So our guests today are going to talk about a few of the skills that they value, and how they think about them. But certainly at Strong Skills, we teach skills that we believe unlock organizations' potential. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last year. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've really been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach of the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guests. And so today is going to be two guests on the podcast. At one, they have formed a pretty remarkable partnership. So Catherine Allen and Ed Afterdinger are our guests on the podcast. And Catherine and Ed founded AO People Partners. And AO People Partners is on a mission to inspire and support the conscious practice of people development in the workplace. And as you'll find in this conversation, both Ed and Catherine want to make people development a core principle, a core focus of the business world. And they care so much about it that they actually wrote a book called Conscious, Capable, and Ready to Contribute. It's a fable about how employee development can become the highest form of social contribution. A bit about Ed. So Ed is a strategic advisor and leadership coach with more than 30 years of leadership and client service experience as managing partner and CEO of large advisory companies. Prior to co-founding AO with Catherine, Ed was managing partner, executive managing partner, of the national advisory firm Baker Tilly. And today, Ed helps CEOs and other leaders improve their performance and do what's best for their team, their business, and hopefully society. As co-founder and chair of the Washington, D.C. chapter of Conscious Capitalism, Ed also has been helping spread the message about the power of business to also do good. Catherine is passionately dedicated to helping leaders and organizations lean into the power of developing people to drive business success and meaningful social contribution. So you can immediately see why these two came together. They care deeply about social impact and contribution, and they also are obsessed with developing people within the corporate sphere. Catherine brings over 25 years of experience working collaboratively with industry leaders, helping them and their organizations to thrive in both the human behavioral, and process aspects of performance and organizational effectiveness. Catherine has a successful track record of helping leaders develop their awareness and their people skills that they need to define and communicate so they can have a clear vision and direction to make difficult decisions, successfully lead their organizations through change motivate and engage an intergenerational workforce. We're going to talk about generations in this conversation and ultimately cultivate their own authenticity and presence. So you're going to love learning from Catherine and Ed. You're going to love learning about their book and how they think about people development. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Ed Afterdinger and Catherine Allen. Catherine and Ed, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to learn with you today. Catherine, I wanted to start with you. Uh, Ed, as we were talking before we started recording, credited you with challenging him, pushing him to write this fable, partner with him on writing this book. Uh, Talk about why it is that you felt compelled to co-author this with Ed and and why you felt like a a fiction, a, a fable approach would be best.
2: First of all, it's so great uh, that you've invited us uh, to be on this podcast. Um, We've really been looking forward to it. I think I'd have to go back a little bit before the book. Ed and I became partners in 2017 because we shared a very strong, Belief and actually a vision that developing people in the workplace uh, needed to become more of what organizations focus on for the sake of the business, but also for the sake of their employees. And so we had been really developing our point of view about people development in the workplace as a form of social contribution and why it's so important today more than ever. And so over a couple of years, we were really, developing our point of view, as I said, doing a lot of research, working with our clients. Uh, And then we decided it was time to write a book. And so the partnership existed before uh, we wrote the book. But I would say about the partnership, Ed and I have known each other for a long time, um, socially, and and then professionally. Uh, But I had a, a view about making people development a much more holistic and integrated way of growing and developing in the workplace. And I really was looking for a partner to help bring that to life. And, and Ed became that partner. So as we started to think about the book, uh, what, how to write a book and what kind of genre to, to uh, do the book in, I started to think about what would leaders, particularly leaders, be enjoy reading. I think I wanted them to enjoy reading and the idea of a fable in the genre of Pat Lencioni, um, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, The Advantage. She's written a whole um, series of fables that um, have a real message in them. And so uh, that's really how the idea was born. I must say, I was. Uh, it was a weekend. I had the idea while I was doing a power walk, as a lot of my ideas come. I knew Ed was on a golf trip, um, in uh, I think it was Wisconsin, Ed, yes. and, um And knew it, it was a really special golf trip, and I was so excited about the idea and so i i just sent him an email with you know what do you think and sketched out the the plan the the scenario and uh, i remember he said to me when he got back i don't know if i you know hate you or love you because i couldn't stop thinking about this fable for the rest of the golf trip is that right ed
1: well
0: it's enough
1: and <laughs> hey, ed, ed, i want to go back a little bit with you though so Catherine mentions you all forming a partnership in 2017 what was the appeal to joining forces with Catherine she she sort of gave us an idea into her perspective but give us your perspective as far as take us back a few years to joining forces with Catherine and the appeal for you sure
0: for me it has to start with the fact that um I was the executive managing partner of Baker Tilly, a large advisory accounting firm, national. For that, I was the CEO managing partner of Beers & Color. I'm an accountant. But as I got into leadership for 20 years, I had the same coach. And people say, wow, you must've been a, you know, not a very good student if you needed the same coach for 20 years. But my job evolved. Truthfully, Brian, as we've discussed before, I knew I wanted a coach. I knew I wanted to do that kind of work. As that first chapter ended,
1: when and, when did you when did you come to that realization?
0: Hmm, I knew that probably ten years. I would say 2012. I was pretty sure. I'm a journaler. I'm a morning journaler. It's one of those things. And when patterns continue to appear in my writings, and I go back and look out, I'm like okay, I got to explore that. And so I, I've known for a long time, like ten years, probably before we actually got together. Um, I got a great opportunity because as Baker Tilly grew and my job changed, you know, I was in a position to be able to not wait until mandatory retirement at sixty-five, and I took the took the early. The reason I tell you that is that well, Catherine, as she said, I've known her uh, for a long time. In fact, her husband and my wife have known each other since high school. We vacationed together. I knew Catherine was a coach, and I thought growth mindset. Uh, people said, "Ah, oh, you don't need to." you don't need any certification for coaching. You'll get all these clients. Dave didn't, my my guy, did. he didn't have any certification. So I thought, well, I ought to test that. (laughs) And I called up somebody that I knew was a very successful and effective coach, and that was Catherine. And two things happened from that lunch at Chef Jeff's in Tyson's, which is now closed. And the first one was, I became convinced to apply to Georgetown, which of course you did as well. And that there was... A lot to learn about it, and yes, I could get business, but I should explore that. The second thing was that we began to realize that we had a common point of view very different. I'm a business guy fundamentally. Catherine can tell you her whole story. She's an organizational development people side of it. I've been managing people for a long time, it was kind of a yin and yang kind of thing. And so, it was, we, we credit Chef Jeff's a lot for the two things that came out of that. Um, and so off we went, I guess. Hey, I'll Ka-
1: say. hey Catherine what was vacationing with Ed like? Uh, so you're in the coaching people development space and that back then he is, you know, an executive. What, what kind of conversations were you all having when you were on vacation together?
2: Well, Ed's got a very wry sense of humor and I really appreciate it. So um, being around Ed, there was always a funny comment. Uh, Where we vacation is one of the most beautiful golf courses I've ever seen. I know there are many, but uh, West Virginia has a beautiful golf course at Cape and Springs. And uh, so my experience with Ed was a lot of laughter, um, watching him play golf. I try to play golf. I enjoy it when um, I'm up there. But uh, it, it really was sitting on the porches, um, making jokes, uh, telling good jokes and laughing at ourselves and, and each other. Um, just lots of joy is really how I describe those times.
1: And it's interesting. You know, bro, go ahead, go ahead, Ed.
0: I was gonna say the, the funny thing about it is that uh, I said to Donna, my wife, I don't know, probably 2015, uh, after many evenings sitting on the porch where we, we, we stayed in the same cabin for want of a better term with Catherine and Tom and the kids. And I said, you know, I just feel like I'm going to work with Catherine because I knew the coaching thing was coming. She didn't know. She, she thought I was an accountant that could play golf really well. She you know, had this sense of humor, but I kind of knew it. I just had a feeling that we would be a pretty good, you know, combo because of our different, our similar points of view, but our different ways of getting there. Um, and so, you know, I think Catherine was a little surprised, you know, maybe in 2016 and 17, when I like, oh, gosh, what? So it, it worked, it's worked out pretty well.
1: It's interesting. You bring up golf because, you know, my background, it's probably how we met Ed was somebody that is also a big golfer connected the two of us. And in your book, you talk about separating mind skills and people skills, uh, so, Catherine, maybe you take the first stab at, at making those distinctions for us. And then, Ed, feel free to jump in and, and just back that up. But, Catherine, why should we make a distinction between mind skills and people skills?
2: But sure. You know, all of us are oriented to skill development in the workplace around these two big bucket of skills, uh, the technical skills, which are often called hard skills, and then these non-technical skills that we know as soft skills. And the we we know, I think you, you say very well yourself, that there's nothing soft or easy about learning soft skills, all these human skills. But another challenge that we have is we need to make skill development of all of our human capabilities more accessible in the workplace is that the, the notion of soft skills is such a huge bucket of every non-technical human skill that you know you're just what skill are you talking about and it's just overwhelming to think of all of the non-technical human skills that you could you could encounter or think about or have to learn and so one barrier that that we believe needs to be lowered so that employers and employees have a better sense of what are core foundational skills, and particularly in the soft skills. Um, They need to be more approachable and knowable. So so our research led us to breaking down soft skills into what we call mind skills and people skills. Mind skills being those brain-based cognitive Uh, skills that are associated with the way we learn, the way we solve problems, the way we uh, make decisions, and then people skills, which are those interrelational, interpersonal, behavioral-based skills that we need to know ourselves and to be able to relate and work with them. Our research and experience landed us around seven mind skills, Um, You think about um, um, executive function as being a meta uh, skill in these seven skills, um, where you focus, uh, executive function are the skills that we use to focus, to plan, to organize, to prioritize, to understand different points of view. Um, So that's a really important concept that, that we all just have to become more familiar with. And then growth mindset is going to be a really important skill for everyone to be developing. Uh, the way we get better at um, all kinds of skills um, every day, uh, the way we look at everything and everyone as a source of learning and growth. Adaptability is going to be a really important, one of the most important skills identified today. And then critical thinking, curiosity, creative thinking, and decision-making. Those were core, what we would call mind skills. And you hey, go Catherine,
1: Catherine, I yeah. want to double click on one of those and Ed, maybe get your perspective on it. Curiosity. It, there was a question in the book where you asked, is that really something that we can develop? And I am on a curiosity kick right now. This is like, uh, I hear it, I see it everywhere. And so Ed, what are your thoughts on developing curiosity? How do you see that playing in the workplace? How did you see that playing as an executive compared to a coach? Just give us your perspective on whether or not curiosity can be cultivated.
0: Yeah, I think what we think for sure that it can, and I know you do too. Uh, I'll start sort of in reverse order on some of your questions. I mean, when I think about what uh, sort of Adam Grant's latest thinking on uh, this topic, he would say, think like a scientist. Scientists have a point of view, they have an idea, they go ahead and try it, doesn't work. They go, huh, that was interesting. Whereas in society today, we have a tendency to double down and go, no, 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 I'm still right. So it's just a really, it's, it's an interesting mindset. I um, mean you know, I think that it's one of the hardest things for companies to figure out how to uh, cultivate. But I do think that it is, um, it's really, I would say this way, sort of a mindset and development way of thinking that if you reward people who make mistakes. If you reward people who are curious, you reward, what does Miles Davis say? You know, there aren't any, there aren't any mistakes, you know, there they just aren't, you know, we just, that's what jazz people do, jazz musicians do. So um, I think it, it's like so many things that it goes back to what is culture. And for me, culture is how things work, who gets promoted, who, you know, how do things get done around here? Who, who, who gets, recognition. And if you are constantly building a culture that's questioning and asking, and it's very safe to do that, you know, then it's the best thing you can do. Uh, it's just, it would be my immediate reaction to it.
1: Well, there's safety and security, and then there's something else that you hit on, which was rewards. And so it struck me as I was reading the book about how much of this is about focus. So are we focused on kindness, for example? And then are we rewarding people? Are we appreciating? Are we celebrating acts of kindness? So back to you, Catherine, on the curiosity front. What does it look like to reward curiosity in the workplace? What does it look like to reward having a growth mindset? Even in the book, you talk about just onboarding people and hiring people that are interested in personal growth. So walk me through a little bit how a company can reward their people for stepping into one of these mind skills. Let's just focus on curiosity.
2: That's great. And let me just back up and just say, one of the challenges that I have seen throughout my career, or I really began to pay attention to at about year 18 into my career, working in on the soft skills side of things, communications, organization development, conflict resolution, et cetera. I think that one of the challenges that we face in organizational life in trying to learn these kinds of skills is that people don't know that they actually are valued by a company and that they don't understand why they are relevant for the business or that organization. They don't understand that that it's actually expected that we'd be able to learn and grow our abilities in these different skills. And then we don't, uh, they don't necessarily feel it's safe because it's not really part of the culture that it's okay to be in the practice of all of these different skills. And then we don't necessarily recognize and reward them. And so the environmental conditions in the work environment don't make themselves really conducive for people to be learning, particularly the soft skills, the mind skills and the people skills on a daily basis, because we tend to send us away for learning, whether it's a, a podcast or online or an offsite experience. So when it, when it comes to developing these core foundational skills, curiosity being one of them, you start to think about um. What happens in the day-to-day work? You're, You're in a meeting with people. And if people know that an organization values, if their employer values curiosity and they talk about the fact they value it and they want people to use curiosity, then the way you ask questions in a meeting, that's a fantastic question, Brian. Why do you think that? Or, you know, I was just really curious about, you know, what we would do if we tried something this way. And so I think that the act of making it more explicit that we value a skill makes it easier for all of us to be in the practice of it.
1: But let's stay here for a minute. And Ed, I know you're going to jump in because if I'm in insurance, if I'm at an insurance company and I bring in X to the company, I know that I'm probably going to be safe because I'm bringing in X to the company. So and they're rewarding me with commissions. If I work for a real estate company, you mentioned real estate in in the book, and I do a deal and that deal brings in X to the company, then I know I'm being rewarded. If I'm a lawyer and I have billable hours and I'm, you know, so we have all of these systems and mechanisms in place in the business world that say, oh yeah, you you are valuable because of what you're doing to our bottom line. The question that, and we can can say that's good, not good. It doesn't really matter for for the sake of this conversation. What I'm really curious about is though, those are all based on outcomes. They're all based on results. They're based on wins and losses. And I work in sports a lot. So we know if you win, you're probably going to get to keep your job. Not always, um, but often. But how do we, how do we, I understand that we can use the language and we can say, hey, this is a safe space for you to ask that question. Um, And if a leader or CEO is in a boardroom and and they're asking questions or they're they're using the growth mindset, so to speak, but valued, you said something that really got me going, Catherine, which is like, but how does someone really know that this is valued? And uh, feel free to hop in here because you're you're leaning into the, I'm using one of my senses. you're leaning into the the camera. Um, how do we actually make this tangible and real so that people get rewarded or get admonished or punished or there are consequences to not doing the thing? How do we actually make this stuff real?
0: Yeah, thank you. I, you're right. You saw me leaning in. I uh, uh, could One very specific example and then a couple of specific but not as specific. So one of the firms that where I worked and we, we take a lot of what we've learned and we try to build this into the clients that we work with consulting and coaching we had a, an entire section of the partner compensation model that was to reward to measure what we call intangibles and they were i think a great dave mcguire my coach are you a partner making partner so a succession mindset, it's a uh, stewardship mindset. We can, we built into our partner comp system and not an immaterial amount. Things like whether or not you are coming up with new ideas, whether or not you are the person that's out there that found that great talent because you were out doing something else and you had an open mind. And it was, as I said, material. now. I'm a, you know, my, the first great business book I ever read was Jim Collins, Built to Last. and My favorite chapter is the tyranny of Or So just to be clear, this is an and deal. So is all of our thinking about conscious, uh, capable and, and ready to contribute. And so, of course, we reward people that bring in business. Of course, we reward client satisfaction. Of course, we reward, but when you start to bake it into compensation systems and reward systems, anything. You know, I'm a business person first. So that's one thing. I'll tell you two of the things because we have a life cycle where we think about how do you embed all this stuff? Again, something that Dave and I talked a lot about, the two most important things. And I I, you know, conservatively have interviewed a thousand people in my career. I know it's way more than that. But that, so we'll go with that number. So you, just so you don't get bored, you got to come up with ways that that keep it interesting. And I always, there were two things I always looked for. One was I left a ton of time for them to ask me questions. What was I testing for, Brian? Their curiosity, curiosity. Yeah. and their ability to redo research and be thoughtful. And the other is, and I, I truly asked every single person after I figured this out, every single candidate, what do you read? it wasn't even what they, what they read that mattered. It was the way they answered that question. It was perhaps, how do you get your information? You know? And it was just always interesting to me when I would get somebody that was a phenomenal fill in the blank technical skills, but had no curiosity, no intellectual curiosity about the world. And if you're a client server, you gotta be able to interact with executives and be able to talk about all kinds of things and care. And to me, curiosity, I will take a breath. I think when people are curious about what's going on in another person's life, what are they demonstrating? Actually, that's kindness. That's caring. They're interested in you. So um, yeah, I we're aligned on our thinking of the importance of curiosity.
1: And, and Catherine, just Ed was talking about at the partnership level, they would get rewarded for creating more partners and succession planning go, go, I'm going to, I'm going to call it down a few levels, even though that's probably not the right way to say it, but in those other areas of a, a business and an organization. So I'm starting out, I'm a 23 year old or 22 year old, and I'm trying, well, at least for me, when I was 22, 23 year old, I wanted to take over the world and had big aspirations and plans, but I also wanted a job so that I could pay my rent. How do you embed some of these skills into those levels where people are maybe living paycheck to paycheck, and they are, are really having to focus on doing their job. And maybe they don't want to go do an improv class or meditate because they need to you know, hunt and go survive to make sure that they have a career. How do you do it when you're in those levels?
2: What I think is really important and actually underappreciated in organizations is the way we even think about I needs mean, to learn and develop on the job. One of the challenges that I, I think employees have is they're they're not aware of what is expected in terms of what they're learning and, and growing into. And so when you when you start a job, it's important to hear really explicitly what are the expectations about how we learn and grow as part of doing our job? It's part of the job. It's part of the way I perform. So that from the very get go, they're hearing messages that leverage development, both as a message that we, we expect it. It's valued. uh, We support each other in doing it. And, And we look at it as a way of performance. And so if you are an employee and you know that really showing empathy is an important part of the job, both to our clients and customers or to each other, um, and we we talk about that, and we'll talk about it in your performance, Um, and or curiosity or being creative is important to us, let's talk about it in terms of your performance. So they have a sense that... It's going to be an aspect of performance, and that could be rewarded through recognition. You did a fantastic job supporting so and so. I could really see that they were struggling, and thank you so much for really reaching out to them. It could be, look what we did together. Um, that's produced a terrific result, and and we get rewarded monetarily. There are any numbers of ways we reward and recognize the use of these. Skills. The point is, Brian, we've really got to make explicit and more comfortable talking about skill development as part of every day, not something that we go away, learn, and then there's a assumption we're going to apply it.
1: All right. So so let's just let's just play this out as real as we possibly can, because I could think about someone listening to our conversation right now and be like, all right, these three are up in the clouds and they all want us to be kind and curious, but you know, business is more ruthless than that. What do you do when you're working with a company that's established, that's profitable, they're doing well, but they want to have a culture that is more intentional or more conscious. Or they want to just have people that are interested in growing and developing, but they're established. They're, they're set. What do they do from there? Like if they're performing at a high level, but they want to revamp the culture and, and have more personal growth or uh, professional development, uh, career development at the core of what they're doing. What do you recommend? What do you, what do you do with that? Because what I've found is that there are organizations that have B players that are content, that are competent. They're not necessarily interested in growing themselves personally, but they do their role. They do their job. Um, But they're not that interested in professional development, professional growth. Ed, maybe you take this one. How do you, how do you work with them to figure out what direction to go in from an organizational standpoint?
0: Great. It's really spot on question. And it's something we do a lot of, you know, intentionally, we have decided from the start that what we really wanted to do was start with the C-suite and the CEO of these organizations, because we know that if there's going to be change, it's gotta start at the top. To my earlier point about the partner comp system, then all of that had to cascade down into individual performance reviews, and we did. And so if you put on somebody's performance review, you know, grade them on curiosity. Then you start to get results. So, back to the this question. So we we it's interesting. Oftentimes, what happens is um, the CEO or someone at the top, despite all that success you described, is is looking out into the future and seeing, hmm, this may not exactly last forever, or we were performing like wonderful nine months ago, why is everybody leaving? That's actually
1: today's problem, right? Yeah, that's uh, the big question, right? Because if I have a B player that's competent and doing their job, but they're not interested in growth or development, in today's world, we're recording this late October, almost November, 2021, there is a massive migration of workers. So what do we do with that person? That's fine, they're okay but they're not interested. They've been at it for 20 years. They're staying in their lane. Um, they're not positively impacting, but they're not negatively impacting. What do we do with those people?
0: Well, I think that the programs that we design for, uh, you know, the high posts, the high potentials, uh, we spend a ton of time, companies do just on them. But, but I think the same types of things will raise the bar a bit for that group for that person. I mean, 93% of employees surveyed today say, if, why? 93%, so that's gonna pull in a lot of those B performers. Hey, if you were to, if you invest in my development more, I would be more likely to stay. And so I think that the way we, back to the question, the way we convince the CEO and the team that this is worth investing in, is that because over the long term, Actually, this was a harder question before the turnover tsunami, before the great resignation. Now people are seeing that, wow, it actually is really worth doing this. So what we do is we start with the top. We, you know, we use the leadership circle. Typically, we get the top group engaged in their own development, working on their own creative and reactive things. And what happens is they get a common language, and then they want to they figure out how to drive it through the organization. That's where we start with the life cycle that's in the book. And we start right up with strategy, and we go right around the horn and start getting them to put into their interviewing questions related to those principles, into their evaluations related to their principles, even thinking about the brand that they want, we want, they want to have their people have if they leave. I mean, it's and it's very comprehensive. But if you don't, if you don't start at the top. That's one of the ahas that Catherine had. And I knew it from my experience back serving, you know, uh, in public accounting that, that, boy, pushing things up in an organization, that's really tough. So if you can hook the CEO and their team, you know, you you have a half a chance.
2: But I want to go back, Brian, to really your, your first question was get really, let's get really specific. Most of the time when um, leaders are looking at things that aren't working. They can be successful companies, but you know, when people come together to work together in an organizational environment, it's like friction and sandpaper. And, and so inevitably things that are very people skill, soft skill oriented come up, whether it's communication, people aren't listening in meetings, or, you know, my manager is very gruff, or they don't spend enough time, you know, being specific about, you know, giving me feedback. It, it, these kinds of issues are, are really natural, but they almost are chronic. And so a lot of times leaders are looking at why can't, you know, why can't Jim, be a better listener with his team. Why is the morale low on the team? Why is it? Why is why is the performance dipped um, in this team? And and then you start to look at what's going on. And a lot of successful companies have learning and development programs, right? And and so it's not the lack of of approaches today. We've got more access to learning and development resources than ever before, which is the great news. I think the big disconnect for many organizations when it comes to how people develop themselves and develop particularly the non-technical skills is that there isn't a common understanding or expectation that we are all needing to be in the daily practice of developing skills that the company really cares about. And a lot of times the companies don't actually articulate specific capabilities that are important for that business. And so then it goes down to goes to what do the leaders talk about and what do they model? Do they own their own journey as in developing themselves? Can they model it so that people can see and be invited? And then do they drive it? And so that's a real mantra for us when we work with leaders is that if you want people to embrace the learning mindset, the ability to learn and grow through every aspect of work, then it really requires signals from the very top. And so you've got to own and you've got to model and you've got to drive the development agenda you want to see in your company.
1: And Catherine, we're talking about how do you retain talent? How do you build, how do you develop? And you make a case in the book that, Hey, if you lose talent, like it is your ROI on that is, is really massive. Um, And to be able to not solve that problem, but to shrink um, people leaving actually helps businesses perform better. Look, we're, we're in a time where people are leaving their jobs and they are looking to do new things uh, where the numbers are drastic. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that over the last year and a half, people have decided to, to shift gears when it comes to their career?
2: This is a question that we're all in the conversation about. I, I think a lot of things are just happening. We are experiencing for the really the first time what a massive disruption uh, feels like. And I think that people um, of all generations but particularly the younger generations really uh, have a, a desire and an expectation that where they work, Um, is a place that they feel welcomed, that they feel accepted, they feel they belong, that they feel it's, it's comfortable to be challenged and to challenge others for the sake of learning and growing. They know actually it's important to learn and grow. If you're a young person in your career, you know that to get to the next level, you've got to be open to learning. As you grow in your career, though, there's still things to learn and grow. But sometimes you get more complacent. But I think that people want a better quality of work experience and work environment. And so, you know, the the pandemic gave us all permission. One showed us that we all could work outside of an office space and do it successfully. And so, I think that's really opened the door for what's important. Um, And people are realizing that life is precious too. And so they're making some fundamental life choices which are really shifting how we think about what they expect at work. So people are demanding better conditions, not just pay. And pay is not always really the most important thing because once you solve for for pay, you know, standards then it's really about the quality of the experience. It's the meaningful work. Does what I do make a contribution? And so I think people are looking for employers to create better uh, a better work environment. But what I would say to employees is that you have to also bring the skills and abilities to make that work environment um, work as well. And so really what people need from work and what work needs from people are converging around the need for all of us to grow our skills. And, and so, And the last thing I'll say, um, and then Ed may get asked this question a lot as well, but I think that we have to see that growing ourselves every day is not only a requirement for our work, but it's required to be able to to succeed in this world that we live in today, because it is so disruptive. It changes so quickly. We have to work with so much diversity and complexity. And so it's a real imperative for
1: business, but also for people. Hey, Ed, I want to get your thoughts on a word. As I'm hearing Catherine speak, the word entitled comes to mind. And when we say that word, at least when I say that word, there's typically a negative connotation attached to it. And I think a lot of people that are one generation above the generation behind them will say that that generation is entitled. Um, and so I think there's often a generational element to, Hey, the younger, the generation behind me, they, they are entitled. But as I hear Catherine talk, it strikes me that people are now saying, no, I'm entitled to having a good work environment. I'm entitled to having flexibility as far as when I come in and when I leave and where I work from, as long as I'm doing my job, uh, I'm entitled to having some autonomy and I'm entitled to growing myself. I'm entitled to developing myself. And I love that Catherine also suggested that it's not just on the company to give that. It's also on the employee to invest in themselves and to make sure that they have gratitude for those investments and that they are doing their part. Um, because entitlement run amok is really, really dangerous. So when I say that word, you're not that old, Catherine, you're not that old, um, but you're older than me. So what comes to mind for you as you hear that word entitled and think about employees and their organizations and their employers and and how we navigate those waters?
0: I I immediately go to a very perceptive, Brian. I think that in, Dave and I used to talk about this and we, the partner and just so people but,
1: know, Dave yep. is is Ed's 20-year coach. So we'll just Correct. hammer that home. So Dave is is actually in the book, even though it's not him, but there's a coach right. in the book that's coaching a CEO. So take all that for what it's worth. Come in yeah, from he's, on this. Yeah, Canada. he's he's kind of the
0: Dave in the book's kind of one part Yoda and one part Bill Campbell from Trillion Dollar Coach. He's got a little bit going, and he is the model for. Yeah, you know, I mean, Dave McGuire, who rest in peace with my coach for a long time, but we used to talk a lot about this idea of the psychological contract. Now I'm not a psychologist, you are, but the, the reality of it is, is that many employers for years and years and years would say, well, what can they do for me? What can they do for me? What can they do for me? And what we figured out a long time ago is that it's, the employer is entitled to a certain level of performance, but it's a contract, you know, a soft contract, a, a, almost a, an agreement that says, huh, by the way, I expect you, Ed, when you when you hire me, you said you were gonna do blank, blank, and blank. You were gonna develop. Me. You were gonna give me these opportunities. I, I left my job and I came to you because of these things. So I think entitled is the perfect word. And I think what's happened in this, one of the things that's happened in the last 19 months is that people have woken up and said, huh, well, you know, we spend more time at work than any place else. I've now seen other ways to be able to do it. And so what I want from my next job is, and what I'm kind of entitled to is this from my employer. But it's a two-way street. That's the nature of a relationship, a contract, is that it's a it's it's really cut in both ways. We just talk a lot about, you know, develop, you know, uh, taking charge of your own development. You take charge of your own development, but then the employer provides you the tools and opportunities to do that. So yeah, I, we could talk about entitlement from a different angle all day
1: long, but I, I actually think it's a perfect work. Well, maybe it's, I'm entitled to certain things, but I'm not, I don't have entitlement and maybe there's Correct. a line there. And and then I, I thought about this a little more, which is going back to that B player that is in an organization and perhaps they are good professionally. And perhaps they don't need to grow professionally, but what about personally? And and perhaps there's an organization that says, hey, we just believe in growing human beings. And so if you are comfortable at this director level or as a sales position, and you believe that that's exactly where you want to be the rest of your career, we will support that. And to use your and instead of or thinking previously, and are there ways that we can help you develop into a better citizen or a better husband or wife or spouse or nephew or niece or cousin whatever it might be and at our organization we just believe in developing people and if this doesn't help you here but helps you there it's probably still going to help you here and there's there are moments in the book that really had me wonder that wonder about that because andrew who's the main character is a ceo i'm going to spoiler alert for those that haven't read it is, deal, is dealing with challenges at home throughout the book. And his, his wife is going through a, a challenging time. And there's almost like um, a rosy element to that. But I, I was reading it thinking like, gosh, this guy, Andrews, I'm not so sure he's really being there for his wife. And I was wondering about how, how tenable is their relationship as he's still trying to right the ship. Um, so Catherine Maybe that's where we need to think about these skills is like, these are just going to help you develop. You spend more time at work than you're going to spend anywhere else. So we're going to invest in you, the person. And therefore we believe that it's going to help our company. Even if we can't see it as an ROI, we just believe in developing people. And that's part of our culture. Am I getting it? Am I understanding your perspective? Brian, imagine
2: that, an employee or prospective employee heard you describe that, say that as an employer, how much more appealing would it be to work for a company that views human development as something that we do, not just for the sake of our business and the the success of our business, but because we care about you as a person. And we know that what we provide you in terms of growing opportunities should help you outside of work and so you're absolutely right and that's exactly the point that we wanted to make in our book but what you said earlier about well you know i'm i'm mid-career in sales i'm pretty good at it i know my stuff I, i i you know produce my numbers um i don't really need to grow anymore i don't think that really holds water because if you work in an organization you do work with other people and in our, our this is the whole point, our, our technical skills and our people skills go hand in hand. And today more than ever, we appreciate how important they are. And just because you are, you have a successful career and you're at mid-career, doesn't mean you've learned everything you need to learn. And it doesn't mean that you can't help someone else learn. And I think that's the other human aspect aspect of a development culture that's really important today is that it's not just about my individual learning, but it's about how I help other people learn. And that sense of caring and the safety in which it's expected that we give each other, that's where the magic in not just development happens, but that's where the magic in performance happens. And so the ROI for companies who really double down in developing a a conscious development culture. They get the ROI from the financials and the performance and the customers and the clients. They also are producing people, employees that can take those skills home. And that's where we get really excited when we think about the broader impact that organizations have today when they are developing the full capabilities of working adults. Yeah. It's... it's,
1: um, Cause here's, here's what I'm thinking. Our school system has a lot of flaws. Okay. I think we can all acknowledge our educational system. It, it always needs to evolve and grow and develop. However, you think about what resources exist in a school. You have nurses, you have counselors, you have teachers, you have coaches, you have leaders. Like there are, there are all of these built in jobs for support of our youth. And we spend most of our career either in school or at a job. Yet, for some reason, those types of roles in the workforce are seen as like not necessary. You're, you have to go do those things on your own now. Well, we don't do that for our children. We don't do that for our most precious objects. We surround them with as loving and nurturing and challenging an environment as possible. But that should go away once you have a job. It doesn't make sense to me. The other piece that's I think we have to hit on an Ed. I want your perspective because you've been in this producer world for a long time. I, I really think I, that this should not be lost in this conversation. If you don't produce in business, there are consequences. Okay, this is the real world. Businesses can't stay open if they're not producing. Um, unfortunately, you mentioned Chef Jeff's a restaurant. Uh, chain that we have in Washington, D.C. closing the doors where you all first had lunch. I actually met my mother-in-law for the first time at Chef Jeff's in Washington, D.C. So Chef Jeff, you have a a special place in our hearts. Um, But restaurants, retail right now, they are they are batting against a world that is just loaded against them because of the pandemic. And it's unfair and it sucks and it's terrible. And the reality of our world and our society is that if you don't produce, you're going to be out of business. And so, Ed, for you, what we've basically talked about is yes, we want to develop, we want to grow people. That should be at the core of every single organization. And that's why I think school, their main focus is to grow and help people develop. Even if they don't do it as great as they possibly can, that's what they're there for. But then there's this other side of the house, which is production. And so how do we create an organization that probably values them equally, or maybe you think one should come before the the other, but how do organizations think about production and how do they think about growth? And I'm going to stop talking because I've been on a rant, but what if we're great at growing and personal development and we've got, people saying, I love working here and our glass door ratings are through the roof and our internal um, data are amazing, but we're not winning, then what? What do we do?
0: Yeah, well, let me, let me just go it Won't be a rant, but maybe just a little bit of a chat here. So one thing uh, to understand is the data is fairly clear on the topic that the companies that, that do invest in their people and in development over time, they just outperform the competition. You can look in conscious capitalism. There's all kinds of data that I think that the statistic that stands out in my mind is that over a 15 year period, the companies, great companies, Southwest, Marriott, Nordstrom, IBM, these places that really invested in their people and culture, they outperformed the S&P eight to one. So it isn't like we're sitting up here just spouting off about wonderful, happy, let's you know, kumbaya. No, it actually works and it has to work or it's sort of, you can't get to, you can't get to the second step, which is then all the things that it does for people. I do want to say one thing about that mid-career salesperson that is crushing it. It is so relevant today. Yeah. He may not want to, she may not want to do a whole lot more and they're doing just fine. And guess what? Their competition, your competition knows that and they're swiping them left and right. So, the key key question is how do you keep them because they're being offered 20 and 30 percent. people aren't just quitting no they're they're quitting and most of them are going to other places for more pay efforts what they perceive to be a better situation so the development stuff we believe is that sort of like okay well that's going to make you better here yeah you get, may have to pay them a little bit more and that's true you do but you actually end up with getting more out of it. the, the uh, um so the 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 growth versus the uh production
1: again we use a sports analogy here i'm i'm asking and then i'm just gonna do it so um it's my podcast it's your your podcast (laughs) i'm not coaching you so i'm not asking for permission i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge you a little on this and and i'm doing it not because i don't believe in all this let's get this real (laughs) quick like i I believe in everything you're talking about, but I understand that there are people that are listening that may not be drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. So let's just use a sports analogy. We have Bill Belichick and the new England Patriots. Their mantra is do your job. You have the Seattle Seahawks with Pete Carroll who believe in holistically developing their people. Now these are two of the best football programs over the last decade in the case of the Patriots, the last twenty years, but they approach it in very, very different ways. Um, the Patriots, it's hey, do your job. If you don't do your job, we're going to find someone else who's going to do your job. Now we're going to develop you, but we're going to develop you as a football player, and that's why you're here to play football and to do your job. The Seahawks are going to bring in, you know, an author, and they're going to bring in all these people, and they're going to have mental performances a key part of their process. And if you listen to Tom Brady and you listen to Russell Wilson, who are the quarterbacks for those two teams, they do sound different. Um, so I, I, I think what I'm trying to get at is, and I'll give you one more example. There was a, a player that played on both cultures and he actually said, I love it in New England. I know exactly what my job is. There's no fluff. There's no BS. I show up, I play football. I go home to my family. I earn my paycheck. And And that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. So that transactional versus transformational leadership is at play here. And there are organizations that are super successful and sustainable that are transactional in nature and not necessarily transformational in nature. And Catherine, I see you nodding your head too. So I'm going to give both of you an opportunity to share your thoughts. Ed, you can go first. I know Ed's a golfer. One day he'll teach me how to play better. Uh, And then Catherine, feel free to jump in here as well, because I think it's a, it is at the core of what this discussion is about.
0: It, it totally is. And I know Catherine is going to jump in and uh, imagine, you know, amplify and some of the things I'm going to say. By the way, the, what's the name of this podcast? Intentional Performers. Intentional Performers. So what we're talking about here, what you just described are two very intentional cultures. Mm. I'm not sure there's a right or wrong there. By the way, do you want to talk about the LA Lakers, Mr.? Under the coach Zen, very cultural. What did they all, what all those organizations have in common in a particular? I will hold that for a second. What do they have in common? They have said, this is what works. This is who we are. Starts at the top, it's very intentional. I think the great example, which really inspired us, and we make reference to it in the book, was a great uh, story from Keegan Leahy, or the book from Keegan Leahy, which is about. To deliberately development organizations. And one of the companies they studied was Ray Dalio's. If you read anything about Bridgewater Capital, you know, it may not be the culture you want, but everybody knows what it is. That's what culture is, very intentional. So, wow, let's think about the football. So what we're saying at our clients is, huh, you better make sure you know what that is, say what it is, build it in your recruiting, building in your training, build it in your performance system, and get the people on the bus that fit that. What's amazing to me is how infrequently companies actually know what they're looking for. And so I would say then the person gets to choose, unfortunately, not in, football, not in professional football, not initially when they get drafted, but choose where you, what environment you want. But the worst place to go is the one that is not intentional, not clear. You don't know what the heck it is. And so that's my answer to it. They both are successful organizations. Sure, Belichick's won lots, but, you know, yeah, so did, you know, Phil Jackson. So, uh, but I think the key word there is conscious or intentional. <laughs> we choose conscious, usually intentional, but they're, they're great in that, you know, great similar. Go ahead, Kath, I know you got more.
2: Well, my take on those two football teams is one has a, is a traditional model of clear expectations It is transactional. It's very focused on on the outcome, but it's it's really focused on the kind of command of the way it's going to be. I think that we're really evolving in terms of the way we think about the needs of people and the impact on a culture. And so, you know, the Seahawks are looking at things perhaps more holistically that that, that those football players do have families. Um, they do, you know, it's it's not just how they physically play, but you know, it's their mental fitness. It's their emotional fitness. And so I think what you really are looking at um, is an evolution in what we value about how we perform and what we need, to sustain good performance over time, because you got to think about where do injuries come from, um, you know. How do we care for ourselves on the field, but off the field as well? We have families. We have, we are citizens in our communities, and I think that the what we value in terms of human potential and human caring and human collaboration actually matter today more than ever, but I I see it as more an evolutionary um, uh, uh, process. And we are just becoming more conscious about what's important. If you ask any person who's had a bad manager, someone that they suffered with, they'll talk about their people skills or lack thereof. They won't talk about uh, necessarily, you know, what their technical skills were. And so organizations understand that there is a direct connection between how we learn and our openness to learn and how safe and clear we make it in our work environment. And I think the data is very clear now. It's only going to become much more clear that organizations that consciously choose to create the conditions for people to learn and grow and are clear about that um, are the ones that are going to outperform uh,
1: over time. It's interesting. The amount of times I've had a client say, I work for an asshole. Um, they don't say I work for an idiot, um, but they often say I work for a jerk or I work for an asshole. Um, and the reality is a lot of bosses become bosses because of their intellect, because they've found ways to add value to the bottom line. Um, and so that that absolutely can happen. It's interesting because I pin those two teams Against each other for the sake of the, our discussion. But the Patriots, who tend to be more transactional, listen to them mic'd up when they're in the Super Bowl or when they used to be in the Super Bowl. Um, and they will, at the end of the game, just they'll, they'll all say to each other, I love you. And so there's something to having that clarity of roles that has led them to bond in a really special way and to have love for each other and respect for each other and trust the cornerstones of of high performance. I want to come back to both of you and for people that are listening to this podcast and they're saying, okay, like I am interested in developing our people and I am in a position to try to create that within our organization. Where should they start? Where should they start thinking about developing their people and and what might that look like? Ed, maybe I'll go to you and then Catherine, if you have anything to add after Ed goes, feel free to, to dive in.
0: Well, I think it's the first thing they got to do is look in the mirror. So, I mean, I think that it, that to me, all of the things that I accomplished at the firm, the programs, the, the learning culture, the high performance, it all started because somebody said to me, you know, you might want to think about working on yourself. I've been a competitive golfer, as you know, since I was eight. So the idea of having someone I mean, I'm 64. I think I'm gonna get better. I am getting better, actually. So, you know, having that mindset of looking at what do I need to work on first is I think you gotta start at the top. You gotta to start with yourself. Um uh, I'm gonna let Kath go next as to where if you if it was that binary, what do we do next? What would you say, Kath?
2: Yeah, so we actually know that you've got to get practical. Um, and so the back of our book, the this the second. The half of our book, we really lay out some very practical strategies that require leaders to really look at. The first is themselves because nothing happens. And we're really clear about this. Research is clear. All of us are clear that if the leaders really don't take charge of this and the top leaders, not your LD leaders or HR leaders. So Ed covered that understanding the role of leadership. Then you need to really look at how to align your business strategies with your people strategies. You are a business, you are an organization that has a mission and what are the skills and abilities that you need your people to be able to do well in order to uh, serve and grow the business and make the business successful. Um, you would be amazed at how many businesses don't explicitly tie capabilities with their business strategy. And so that becomes a really important thing for executive leaders to do is to actually look at that. The next thing um, that's important is to really think about the principles. What what do people in our company need to understand about what we think about development, what we uh, expect our Employees to understand about learning and growth and the expectations why we value it, why it's relevant to the business, why it's expected, why we make it safe and why we incentivize it. So principles that create a common language are going to be a really helpful Uh, for all employees to understand what's expected. And that makes it easier for everyone to be uh, a part of this. Um, The next is to identify those core capabilities. And this is just investing in the time it takes to look at the capabilities of the company and the capabilities of the people so that you know what to focus on developing. And people are clear once again. And then finally, embedding... Development messaging and practices into the employee lifecycle. Every single organization basically uses the employee lifecycle. It's already there. And so, to be able to look at how, how do we talk about uh, development and our approach and expectation and commitment to development in the way we attract employees, in the way we interview and recruit employees how we onboard them how we develop them how we weave development into performance management uh, engagement retention strategies and even offboarding and and so that's a very practical roadmap and it can make a huge difference when you're thinking about development and leveraging development messaging and practices into the employee lifecycle, we think it can be a game changer because it is so practical and it is it's really more an investment in time um that can have a huge impact these are these are shifts really these are mind shifts they're shifts in perspectives and shifts in practices that can make a huge difference in making development a more natural part of of the work we do every day and the way we care for people and help each other grow
1: one of the things that i loved was you just hit on was offboarding and really you emphasize it in the book Well, what happens when someone leaves uh a down the road, they might be a client. Down the road, they might come back. How you treat people when there's actually nothing in it for you in the moment is good business. And I, I was talking to someone the other day, is like good business is good business. Like if you treat people well, like it is a competitive advantage. And so I, I loved how you focus on offboarding as well, because I think so much gets talked about with onboarding and recruitment. But how you offboard people can impact your recruitment and can impact what onboarding looks like in the future. And so I think a lot of what you talk about is a long game approach, is a patient approach, is doing the right thing um, because it's good for business and it's good for our society. And look, I'm of the opinion that you can have it all. So let's at least try. Um, Catherine and Ed, you both said something and, and we'll start to wind down here. But you both said something about you start with yourself. So if we're going to start somewhere, we start with the CEO or the C-suite or the leaders. So I'm curious for you, Catherine, maybe you go first here. What do you intentionally do to make sure you're good, to make sure that you're taking care of yourself? Uh, Ed, you mentioned journaling. Uh, Catherine, anything that you do to make sure that you're at your best as consistently as possible?
2: There are two things. Um, I have really adopted over the last, I don't know, 30 years, um, I have come to really appreciate this idea that everything and everyone is a form of learning and growth. And I really have learned to look at that every day. It has just become an ingrained part of the way I think about everyday life. Everything that happens, I say everything's perfect and I get to figure out why. And it allows me to stay curious about why something is happening, um, what's the learning in it. Um, It's really the essence of a growth mindset, I think. I am um, a Buddhist, I've been a Buddhist practitioner for 35 years practically, and that really keeps me centered. Um, I think everyone, regardless of uh, your spiritual practice or affiliation, when you have a daily practice that allows you to reflect, allows you to get centered, allows you um, space to set up your day and be intentional about your day, really allows you to stay in, a a mind frame, a mindset of openness uh, to opportunity and learning. And so those are the the two things that have helped me tremendously over the years and and really guide the way I work with clients today.
1: That's beautiful. Ed?
0: What I would add is that um, I've been so fortunate over the years to have some great coaches, some amazing bosses, mentors, spiritual advisors, and then there have been things that have been said to me that I remember and I need a way to remember. So I'm not in my office right at this moment, but when I am, you know, I have two inspirational walls sitting on on each side of my desk and, you know, one of things like misery is optional. You know, I remember when Betty told me that, you know, in the eighties when I was going through a rough time, like pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. So You can't go very far without in my office without seeing that, or mood follows action. That's actually in the book. (laughs) Um, these things that come to me. And I well, I use the journaling to remind me of the things that then I really want to adopt. I'm a creature of habit and I get into things and I use them. And remind Water Conquers Rock. That's another great one. Holy smokes. So they're just. I've been very intentional. And I will tell you, I do the same thing before every talk, every speech, every big meeting. And I've done it for over 35 years. It's just a little little mantra. So I get myself ready to perform. Some days I perform better than others, and I accept that. But I get ready. And um, uh, I, I feel blessed that I am wired a certain way, that habits get formed with me, you know, pretty easily. And then when I get into them, you know, I'm I, I, I stick with them and
1: uh, yeah. And then how about your partnership? So you've been together since 2017. You've known each other longer than that. In the book, you hit on partnership quite a bit. Um, Ed, maybe you take the first stab here. What allows for your partnership to thrive? What allows for partnership to thrive in some of the organizations you work with? Um, give us some of your experience as far as what makes a great partnership. And then maybe what gets in the way of a great partnership.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We- uh, it's great. So I'll start with you know the graduate marks, you know, word of the day, intentional. So what I know is that uh, what works best is when it's clear what people's roles are. And you don't know that on day one necessarily, but it's kind of nice if early on. So Catherine and I carved out pretty early on what each of us were going to do as far as okay, certain things you have to be completely aligned on point of view, you know, what, what what's the, what are the, you know, what's the BHAG, what, know things like hey we actually think that uh, development is the highest form of social contribution but then it comes down to all right she's got gifts and talents i've got gifts and talents make sure that we're not trying to do everybody else's job and we're very clear on it so you know i'm you know i'm working off my network of 35 years you know i'm out there a lot generating business you know doing coaching with the c you know ceos a lot Catherine is driving We'll see what she says, but um, you know she's running the operation. Thank goodness, and uh, you know is really the, the thought leader behind much of. You know, I got the opportunity. I'll say this, and I'll kick it over to her. She gave me a great gift, and that gift was to to basically crawl inside of Andrew Hyde's head, so that he and the company could discover could discover all the things that really Catherine had been thinking about for a long time. I am in their in their mind, to be clear. But but the big ideas, the big vision, people strategy, the things that are in the back, I got the joy of letting it flow out of you know my head, which was really Andrew's head. I think what makes a bad partnership is when you know ego gets in the way, and you are you know you have two people that think they should both be the boss on everything. This is not going to work. That's why a lot of people don't get partners. <laughs> um but in our case i think we've carved out the roles pretty pretty nicely and
1: uh, and we like each other that's another important thing you gotta you know you gotta like your partner hey catherine before we go to you just a couple of things to clarify so andrew Hyde is the main character in their book and BHAG, hag since ed is referencing that stands for big hairy audacious goals which comes from jim jim collins and, uh, Ed mentioned his book previously built to last. So I'm a big stickler for acronyms. That's good. That's good. Nobody knows what anything is. I, I, cause I've been, I've, I've been in meetings where I'm like, I have no idea what that acronym stands for. So I always try to clarify that. Um, but as Ed said, Jim Collins, his books are all pretty awesome, but, uh, built to last is certainly spectacular. Catherine, uh, let's kick it over to you. Talk to us about partnership.
2: You know, I would start by saying Ed and I have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Um, we respect each other's uh, uh, expertise, our backgrounds. And I think it really starts with respect. And we really appreciate what we each bring to the table. We bring very complementary, different but very complementary strengths. And we really work on leveraging it. Um I also think that both of us are very committed to our core value of learning and and growth. And so when you look at everything as an opportunity to learn and grow, then everything that we do, we learn from each other. So that's, that's, I think, part of what makes our partnership so solid is that we respect, we care, we appreciate what we bring to the table. And when you can start with that basis, and then when you're really committed to learning and growing as we are building this business, then that's, that's where the magic is, um, is being able to build on uh, how we are both learning and growing, even at our stages of careers. And so it, uh, it, it reinforces.
1: Awesome. So to close, I'd love to give you both a megaphone to just promote whatever you think deserves promoting obviously the book is called conscious capable and ready to contribute as Catherine mentioned before uh the first part is a fable it sounds like it's more in Ed's voice and then there is also this part of more how to uh how to integrate some of the themes in the fable and make it real and make it come to life which sounds like Catherine bit off a lot of that process as well um, their website is aopeoplepartners.com. There's a beautiful butterfly on there. There's a lot about transformation and shifting mindsets, which of course I love, uh, and sort of giving perspectives and, and helping provide tools and practices to organizations. Um, but if people want to learn more about each of you, I know you both are on LinkedIn. Uh, where else can people find you? Catherine, uh, why don't you go first and, and share anything else that you think people should know about you or about AO?
2: I would just say that I think it's a really exciting time Uh, even though it's a time of great change. I think that organizations today have uh, such a great opportunity to really contribute um, more capable people. That is our belief and it's our vision that one day um, people development in a workplace will become a recognized and incentivized form of social contribution. And so that's really what our book is about is, is offering this vision for, for what organizations actually contribute to society that we often don't appreciate. And, and we think it needs to be more appreciated. Um, And so I just, it's a hopeful message. It's, and, and that's really what uh, we, are all about and then helping us be able to do that. So we exist to inspire and support the conscious practice of people development in a workplace. And there's so many great ways to do that today. Um, you can of course, visit us on our website, aopeoplepartners.com, uh, um, through our LinkedIn, Katherine.allen. Um, we are on Twitter. I am uh, half contributes is my Twitter handle. And um, I know you put that in in your notes, your your, uh, show notes. Um, But we are uh, a leadership development and people strategies firm. So we help leaders um, become more successful in the way they use their skills and help drive development in the workplace. And then with our people strategies, we help organizations really look at that employee life cycle and find find ways to leverage uh, messaging messaging and practice uh, of people development
1: fantastic ed yeah my uh twitter handle
0: is ed Ofterdinger. so one nice thing about having a name like Ofterdinger, there are not a lot of them out there so that one wasn't taken um and of course linkedin and, and I would, there was also a book website which is conscious so if you're interested in purchasing it that would be another way to do it um yeah, I, I I love coaching. You know, as I said, and so I think the primary thing I do at the company is I work with executives um, who are, in many cases, trying to figure out, like I did, <laughs> the rest of their lives. I'm inspired by people like Alan Old, who at 86 is still creating. My goal is to live a long life and continuing continue to be generating something, whether it's you know writing more, helping people. That's really what I want to do. And um, so uh, that's where we become a great combo because we've got a team of coaches. Um, Brian is a very accomplished coach, as uh, many of his listeners know. So he knows what that's all about. Um, yeah, it's just been a privilege to talk. And uh, someday maybe we can talk about intentional performance on the golf course because your book has helped me. Uh, I think I'll share one thing on that that I, I shared with Brian that as a guy, I mean, I went to UVA on a golf scholarship. My dad was very grateful that I was, you know, hitting that driving range and not necessarily spending too much time in the books. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure enough, but I've been competing my whole life. And so the the idea of uh, practicing with humility and playing with arrogance, I, you know, I, I love that chapter because it is really true that you really need to be just so open when you're practicing. And then when you get into it, you gotta, you just gotta go at it hard and you gotta, think you're the best. And uh, that's been very helpful. I've had a pretty good, uh, pretty good year. So thank you for that.
1: Well, and I just came back from a golf trip with my buddies and I can tell you, I'm going to need to go see you to help me with my golf swing. Uh, and so maybe we'll we'll do some bartering and some trading when it comes to golf skill acquisition. Um, Sounds great. <laughs> uh, so look, this has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed getting to know both of you over the years. You've been extremely helpful to me And I've loved seeing what you're doing at AO and what you're doing with the book. Uh, It's inspiring stuff. I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. Those are the two places I like to play the most And you. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskillsco slash podcast. Catherine, Ed, look forward to seeing you for lunch sometime soon. Um, And thanks for everything you're doing and contributing to our society, to our industry And to our community, we're all based out of Washington, D.C. So I'm grateful for you and the work you're doing and looking forward to talking to you again real soon.
2: Thank you, Brian. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. There's all kinds of data. That I think the statistic that stands out in my mind is that over... 15-year period, the companies great companies, Southwest, Marriott, Nordstrom, IBM, these places that really invest in their people and culture, they outperformed the S&P 8 to 1.